On Tuesday, in our weekly email that goes out, we, we included uh, a link to an organization that's doing relief work there in southern Turkey, northern Assyria. If you are interested or have a desire to give money to those agencies that are doing that work, you can use that link. If you follow or receive the email updates from our team uh, that's in the field there, they also, in their emails, gave a way that you can give directly to Avant, which is our partnering sending agency. And that money also would, would make it over there to support relief efforts. So if that's something that you're interested in doing, there are two ways that you can do that. Um, we, would, we would encourage and, and support you to do that if you feel so led. Um, if you've got a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 1. If you're visiting with us today or you're sort of checking us out online, welcome. We've been, we've been in about two verses of Genesis for four weeks. And we're going to stay in Genesis chapter 1 this morning. One of the great disservices that modern day Christianity does to modern day followers of Jesus is that it's turned the Bible into what is what oftentimes seems like a disjointed, disembodied sort of collection of one-liner quips that you can just kind of open up uh, scripture, you can grab a phrase or a sentence or maybe a short, you know, little paragraph, lift it from its context, and then just sort of apply it to whatever circumstances or momentary situation you might have going on. For instance, have a big event coming up. Well, Philippians 4.13, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. I would assume that on the Super Bowl today, you will see someone with eye black and it will say, Phil 4.13 underneath there, as if that verse is about winning a sports ball game. It's not. It's not. It completely disregards the context. Dissatisfied with the direction of our nation, well... 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and turn away from their idols and pray to me, I will hear them and heal their land. The problem is that that is not about America and is not about any modern day geopolitical entity. That was written to a specific group of people trying to boost your resolve in the presence of God or the power of prayer. Well, good news, Matthew 18.20, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am there. Well, that's weird because that's about church discipline. So how do we reconcile those things? Don't like the rebuke that you received for your sin? Hey, Matthew 7, 1, it sounds best in the King James. Judge not lest you be judged. Well, that's not saying that we should never make moral appraisals of situations. It's a verse about condemnation, which is very different than just judgment. In a difficult season and looking for the promise of hope, good news, Jeremiah 29, 11. God's will to prosper you, not to bring you harm. Well, that ignores the fact that that was written to Israel about their exile in Babylon. The common thread in all of these is that our kind of pick-and-choose, single-verse devotional style leaves us very open to completely ignoring why that particular verse was written, who it was written to, what it was trying to convey, and the circumstances that it's addressing. So, are you trying to win a debate about the age of the earth, the feasibility of evolution, 
the truth of the Big Bang, whether or not dinosaurs were ever a real thing, great news. Just flip yourself open to Genesis chapter 1 and it will answer all of those questions for you. Or will it? Is Genesis chapter 1 attempting to provide you answers for all of those questions? Is it capable of providing answers for all of those questions? What we're going to do this morning is walk our way through the six days of creation with one primary goal in mind. What is this chapter trying to say to its reader? Whether that reader is an ancient Israelite, a modern-day American, a woman in Beijing, China, or a man in a tribal village in Papua New Guinea. Because what it cannot be doing is saying different things to each of those people. Across time and across space and regardless of geographical location, it has to be communicating the same thing. And so what is that thing. I mentioned the very first week of this series that one of the primary challenges in our time in Genesis would be getting ourselves into the mind of an ancient Israelite as they, re- they read these or listen to these early chapters of scripture. And nowhere is that challenge more in the face of our sort of modern Western framework than when we sit down with Genesis chapter one and attempt to understand what it's saying to us. So if you've got it open there in front of you, we're going to read all of chapter one. We read all of chapter one last week. We're going to read all of chapter one this week. We're probably reading all of chapter one next week. So by the time we get done with this, we'll all just have it memorized, which will be fantastic. Genesis one, starting in verse one, says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. 
He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he made and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, that you have chosen to use human language to try to convey to our finite minds all of the infinite glory and majesty that you contain and that you are. God, that you would choose to reveal yourself to us that you would give us in your word everything that we need for righteousness and godliness and faithful living. God, we praise you and we ask that your spirit would be here among us this morning, taking the truth of your word and opening our hearts and minds and eyes to who you are. God, would you help us to live in light of your word, to worship you in response to the glory of your nature. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the plan this morning. We're going to walk our way, kind of step through Genesis chapter 1, these six days of creation, with the aim of figuring out what Genesis says. Then we will take a moment to talk directly about what Genesis chapter 1 does not say. I think that's helpful. And then ask ourselves, okay, what do we do with this in 2023? So what is Genesis chapter 1, the creation account, trying to say to us. There's a common apologetic argument against Christianity. Apologetic just means like a reasoned argument or reasoned response. So someone from outside of Christianity will often take as the basis of their reasoned argument for not believing, look at the creation account, and say, aren't there just all of these ancient creation myths that are pretty much the same? That pre-modern, superstitious, kind of like polytheistic religious uh, individuals looked at the world and tried to give an explanation for what they saw. And Genesis chapter 1 is just another take on all of those stories. There's some truth. The truth in that is that there are a lot of ancient creation stories or myths. Babylon had its own creation myth called the Enuma Elish. Canaan had its own. Mesopotamia has the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is actually the oldest piece of literature on planet Earth. 
Egypt had multiple creation stories involving any number of gods. Fast forward to Greece and Rome and their sort of pantheon of gods and goddesses, and there's a creation account present there. What Genesis chapter 1 is actively and intentionally saying, and the response to that sort of apologetic argument is, Genesis is actually saying, this is totally different than those. This is not a reprisal on the same kind of story that all of these other polytheistic religions have for the creation of the world. This God, capital G, Yahweh, that we worship is totally different, unlike any of those other gods. The takeaway, like the big anchoring point this morning, is that the nature of God is the focal point of the creation account. Who is he? What is he like? What does he do? Said another way, Genesis chapter 1 is an account about the who of creation, not the specifics of when or the tiny mechanics of how. The creation account is about the who of creation. The nature of God is the focal point of Genesis chapter 1. Last week, we took Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. We said that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, tohu, wavohu. And then in six days, God fills our, he gives form to the formlessness and he fills the emptiness. Two sets of three days, the first three giving form, the second three filling what has been created or formed. Now we're going to take kind of a more specific look at these six days. I did my undergraduate degree in religious studies. And at various times during my collegiate experience, I read any number of those ancient creation myths. I promise this morning not to beleaguer you with those things. But I do want to show you what I mean when I say that Genesis 1 is a powerful statement to the people of Israel about who God is and what all of those other lowercase g gods are not. That statement still holds for us today. Genesis 1 is an account about the who more than it is about the when or the tiny details of how. So if you've got Genesis chapter 1 open there in front of you, what is the big overriding thing that when you read through Genesis chapter 1 kind of hammers home the whole way? God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, and there was. God said, let the water be gathered together and called seas, and let the land be gathered together and called earth, and it was so. God said, let there be an expanse, our lights in the expanse of the sky, one to rule the day, one to rule the night, and it was so. God said, let the seas swarm with creatures, and the firmament or the sky be filled with winged creatures, and it was so. God said, let there be creatures upon the land, and it was so. God said, let us create humanity in our image and in our likeness, male and female, and it was so. The overriding rhythm is God says it and stuff happens. That's what's supposed to jump off the page. He is sovereign and omnipotent. Those are the theological terms that we ascribe to that action. He speaks and within his word is the absolute power to do that which he desires. When we say that God is all powerful, what he wants to bring about happens. He has all the power necessary, and in Genesis chapter 1, we see it as just within his word to bring about everything that he desires. He says it, it happens. 
most of those other polytheistic creation myths involve two or more gods who are in some struggle against one another. And kind of like if you took two stones or, or two sticks or something like that and you smashed them together or you rubbed them together and you created a spark, the sense in those other creation myths is that these two gods come together and they're struggling for power and in the spark of their struggle, you get the universe. Good Evil is usually what's at stake. They're kind of slamming their heads against one another, and out of that, you get the birth of the universe. An ancient person sits down with Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The immediate question, where was the fight? God said, let there be light, and there was light. Where was the struggle? That's what Genesis chapter 1 is conveying to an ancient person. There's no battle or war in the creation account. It is out of God's free will and free initiative that he chooses to create for the display of the fullness of his immeasurable and infinite glory. And when he says it, it happens. Genesis 1 is so startling in the world of ancient religion because there is no hand-wringing. There's no fighting. There's no battle that takes place. And then, on the back of saying and that thing springing into being, God provides a judgment. He assesses the thing that he created, and it's always good. Light and dark, and it was good. Land and sea, and it was good. Octopus, good. Toucan, good. Cockroach, good. Right? And we'll find out in Genesis chapter 3 that his assessing or his ability to judge has a moral component to it. It's not just that he creates, he needs no do-overs, he doesn't need an editing process, he doesn't make something and then regret it. No, he makes it, he's the absolute authority to do it, it springs into existence, he provides a judgment. It's good. And that judging ability carries moral connotation, which we'll see a little bit later. And so you just walk through the days. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. The spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated light from darkness, called the light day, called the darkness night, evening, morning, one day. David Kidner, in his commentary on Genesis, says this, or Derek Kidner, excuse me, to some of the ancients, day and night suggested warring powers. To modern man, merely a spinning world. But Genesis knows nothing of either conflict or chance, only of the watchful creator who assigns to everything its value, place, and meaning. Day two, an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. In our modern minds, we read that and we say, where's the upstairs water? Like the sky is not blue because there's an ocean up there. And we have these science questions. But in the world of uh, polytheistic creation myths, often what happened is in the struggle, when everything is created, we end the struggle by saying, you take the downstairs stuff and I'll take the upstairs stuff and we'll all just be happy. And so in the Enuma Elish, Babylon, you get thousands or hundreds of gods up in the sky and hundreds of gods down on the earth and we'll all just coexist. Not so in Genesis 1. He separates it and he's Lord of both. 
He rules all the upstairs stuff and all the downstairs stuff. Day three, gathers up the, all the water into one place and he calls it the seas and he gathers up all the land and he calls it the earth. When Mesopotamia, years later in Egypt, the waters themselves are literally divine. Not just that there's a God of the Nile or something like that. No, like the water itself has divine power. Not in Genesis 1. God says, I'm going to gather you up and you can come to right here and no further. I set your boundary. I'm going to pull together the land and you end here. There's no other God that rules that thing. I separate it out. I determine where it goes and how far it can go because I rule. I'm Lord. Day four, you get the sun, the greater light to govern the day. You get the moon, the lesser light to govern the night. And then like a passing comment in verse 16, uh, as well as the stars. In pretty much every polytheistic religion, there's a God of the sun, there's a God of the moon, there are gods up in the heavens. Not so with this God. I make them and they serve my purposes. I made the sun so we can mark out days. I made the moon and it controls the tides. I made the stars and they're beautiful to look at. They serve my purposes. You don't worship and serve them. They serve me, the God of Genesis chapter one. Days five and six, he rules the creatures of the earth and the sky and the sea. It's not that there's this massive blue whale and it's so big and it's so powerful that like maybe that thing is in control. Nope, God says, hey, here's a blue whale and it's good. That's all. Enjoy. Here's an elephant, huge it's about the size of the blue whale's heart. And it's just good. They serve me. They're a display of my glory and my greatness and my creative power. And then he creates humanity. And in almost every polytheistic origin or creation story, humanity becomes the result of this struggle between the gods and exists ultimately as subservient to those gods. Not so in Genesis chapter one, God creates and then he like raises humanity to this place of sonship and partnership. You're going to rule. Humanity gets infused with this dignity. You're made in my image, he says. The dominant interest in Genesis chapter one is theological. We cannot allow ourselves to think otherwise. We may read with different eyes and different lenses today, but we still have to see the account the way those who it was initially written for would have seen it if we want to understand it correctly. We would like for something like Genesis chapter 1 or really any of the narrative parts of the Bible to just come out in name for us like the didactic truth. Instead of saying, God created the heavens and the earth, we want it to say, in the beginning, God was sovereign. No, you're reading a narrative account and you're taking out the truth of who God is. And so, who is he? Well, he is sovereign. He controls things for his purposes and he is omnipotent. He has all the power to carry forth that which he desires. He is judge 
of all that he has created. We'll find out that has a moral aspect. He rules. He rules both the heavens and the earth. He rules the creatures of the sea and the air and the land, the sun and the moon and the stars. Serve his purposes. He rules over them. And he presides over those things. It's not just that he created them and then he steps out. No, he causes it all to continue to exist. He provides vegetation for food, sun, moon, stars for seasons and days and beauty and for life. And then God blesses, blesses humanity. His blessing actually begins in day five when he blesses uh, the creatures of the sea and the air. He raises humanity to the level of sonship, partnership, that we would rule, subdue along with him. And you get to the end of the Genesis 1 account, and an ancient Israelite person would say, that's pretty impressive. Like, compared to everything else that I hear from these other religions around me, this God is very different from anything else. There's a scene in Cool Runnings. It's pretty early in the movie. Uh, coach has made a bobsled on wheels. He's got Yule and Junior and Sanka and Doris there. And he says, gentlemen, this is a bobsled. And then he starts to put each of the guys in their position in the sled. And so he says, Yule, second middleman. You're strong. You're powerful. Yada, yada, yada. Then he says, Junior, first middleman. You're quick. Then he says, Sanka. And Sanka says, I know, I know. I am the driver. And he says, no, you're the brake man. Sanka says, I am the driver. I am Sanka Coffee, best push cart driver in all of Jamaica. I drive. You get where I'm coming from? And the coach says, let me tell you where I'm coming from. I'm coming from two gold medals, nine world records in both the four-man and the two-man event, 10 years of Intense competition against the greatest athletes in the world. That's where I'm coming from. Sanka says, that's a heck of a place to be coming from. That is Genesis chapter 1. Like, all these other religions would say, let us tell you what we think happened. And then God says, this is what happened. That's who I am. No struggle. No wrestling for power. I tell the water where to stop. I rule the heavens and the earth. I can judge that which I have created. I rule. I reign. I preside. I provide. I'm omnipotent. I'm God. Okay, so then briefly, what is Genesis 1 not saying? Because it's worth being clear about the other side of this. The account is not an explanation of astrophysics. It's not trying to offer detail on geological dating or provide an archaeological record. Oftentimes we come to Genesis 1 and we want it to do that sort of work. It would be like going out to your car in the morning tomorrow. You stick the key in there, you turn it on, and you get that clicking sound where you're like, "Uh uh-oh. And so you get out of your car, you walk inside, and you grab the uh, owner's manual to your vacuum cleaner. And you say, I'm going to figure out how to fix my car. You take your owner's manual for the vacuum cleaner and you go outside and you're trying to compare that manual to what you're looking at under the hood and it will never help you. It can't. It wasn't written to help you with the car. That's often what we do with Genesis chapter 1. I have all of these questions. 
about the age of the earth and the existence of dinosaurs and the Big Bang and the mechanics of how all of this happened. I need Genesis 1 to provide me all of those answers. And it can't. It won't. Try as hard as you want, but it will never be doing that. Here's another way to think of it. You're a teenager in the land of Canaan. You just crossed through the Jordan River with all of your people. Joshua and Caleb are the only two remaining Israelite individuals who spent all the time in the wilderness and knew Moses, yada, yada. You really have a burning question about this uh, verbal kind of origin story of the universe that you've heard people give. And so you corner Caleb one day because he's the elder. And you say, Caleb, I know the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but I have a burning question. And Caleb says, okay, what is your question? How long ago? And Caleb says, did you miss the point? What do you mean, how long ago? It's not trying to tell you how long ago. It's trying to tell you about the God that we worshiped. You know, the one that led us in a pillar of fire through the wilderness, the one that rescued us out of slavery in Egypt, the one that called our ancestors. That God created. That's the point, whippersnapper. Now leave me be. How can I be sure about that? What is it that gives me like a level of confidence that this is the intent of Genesis chapter one? Well, really briefly, I want us to look at other places in scripture where creation is talked about. I'm just gonna read these pretty rapid fire. 2 Kings 19.15. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord, Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. First Chronicles 16, 26, for the gods of peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Nehemiah 9, 6, you, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to to all of them, and all the stars of heaven worship you. Psalm 24, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord, for he has laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Isaiah 40, 28, do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. In the New Testament, Acts chapter 17, Paul says, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect, for as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim this to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. Colossians 1, for everything is created by him in heaven and on earth. And maybe the longest run about creation outside of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 comes when the Lord speaks to Job in Job chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Who laid its cornerstone? 
Who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and total darkness its blanket? When I determined its boundaries and put its bars and doors in place? When I, when I declared you may come this far but no further? Your proud waves must stop here. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or assigned the dawn its place so it may seize the edges of the earth? The earth is changed as clay is by a seal. Its hills stand out like the folds of a garment. Have you traveled to the sources of the sea or walked on the depths of the ocean? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the road to the home of light? Do you know where the darkness lives so that you can lead it back to its border? Are you familiar with its paths to its home? Don't you know? You were already born. You've lived so long. Have you entered the place where the snow is stored? Have you seen the storehouses of hail which I hold in reserve for times of trouble? What road leads to the place where the light is dispersed? Where is the source of the east wind that spreads across the earth? Who cuts a channel for the flooding rain or clears the way for lightning to bring rain on an uninhabited land, to satisfy the parched wasteland and to cause the grass to sprout? Does the rain have a father? Who fathered the drops of dew? Whose womb did the ice come from? Who gave birth to the frost of heaven? When water becomes as hard as stone and the surface of the watery depths is frozen, can you fasten the chains of the Pleiades or loosen the belt of Orion? Can you bring out the constellations in their season and lead the bear to her cubs? Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you oppose its authority on earth? Can you command the clouds so that a flood of water covers you? Can you send out lightning bolts and they go? It's a who statement, not a how or a when. The answer in Job 38 is Job crying, uncle, I have spoken about things too marvelous for me. In none of these is the concern with time or date or the tiny details of how. When the Bible talks about creation, its concern is always with the grandeur of who. Who did it? So what do we do with that? When we come to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, we are to be overwhelmed with the reality of the God of creation. The nature of God is the focal point of the account. And so, what is the right application of Genesis chapter 1? Well, the creation account is intended to create worship of the creator. That's why we have it. When we shift the text into something else, we diminish the glory of the God that Genesis 1 sets before us. First and foremost, in Genesis 1, we are to be wowed at God's majesty. When the Israelites get out into the wilderness and Moses goes up the mountain and he comes back down with the Ten Commandments, what's commandment number one? You will have no other gods before me. That flows out of the fact that God puts the very notion of other lowercase g gods to shame at the creation of the world. He embarrasses those gods in Egypt in the Exodus event. He triumphs over the gods of Canaan as the Israelites press into the promised land. He humiliates the idea of Baal when all the prophets are gathered together on Mount Carmel and they're calling down for a sacrifice and Baal does nothing but God comes down and he licks the whole thing up in fire. At every juncture, including the very beginning, God displays himself to be capital G, God. The reality of God being the one and only God is the foundation of his people's worship. 
That's where worship begins and ends for the people of God, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the church today. The beginning and the end point is the identity, the majesty, and the glory of the God revealed in Scripture. That's the takeaway from Genesis chapter 1. The right time to flip back and read Genesis chapter 1 is not when it's time to win an argument or bolster your talking points. The right time to read chapter 1 is when your heart wants to worship something lesser. You feel tempted to worship your bank account and the money in there? Go back and read Genesis chapter 1 and ask yourself, can my bank account give rise to the ocean? No. Worship the right thing. You feel tempted to worship like the praise of other people. Go back and read Genesis chapter 1. Is someone's compliment going to throw the stars up into the sky and cause them to shine for you? No, sure not. Worship the right thing. That's what Genesis 1 is about. When you're struggling with worshiping something lesser, read Genesis 1 and get square on who it is that we truly worship as opposed to the finite, broken, unsatisfying thing your heart might want to worship instead. The creation account is intended to create worship of the creator. I want to spend just a little bit of time here in the midst of this conversation talking about the way in which we disagree with one another. For some of you, you're thinking to yourself, I hear all of this, Tim. Been a pretty solid 35 minutes, but you haven't answered my question. Old earth or young earth? 24-hour day, literally, or something different? Okay. I hear your question. As we jump into this topic about disagreement, hear me say this. Most of the time when we get wayward in these points of debate and disagreement, the issue is misplaced worship. And I'll explain what I mean. First and foremost, we need to have a right-sized view of the things that should dominate our view. We worship the one who is worthy of worship. We get ourselves all out of sorts when we get our focus out of place. In this case, the who of creation, the nature of God is what should dominate our view. That's why we started this series so slowly. Four words, in the beginning God. He is uncreated, eternal, infinite, independent, unchanging. He is grand and powerful and glorious and he is bigger than our hearts and minds often give him credit for. He can bring everything from nothing. He holds the entirety of the universe's existence in his hands at all times. He sustains the order of our planet and the shifting of the ocean's tides and the processes taking place inside the bacteria inside of your colon. He does all of that and his attention is not divided. He does it all at the same time. He can take that which is dead and bring it to life. He can take hearts of stone and turn them to flesh. He can take humans who are dead, disobedient, and doomed, Ephesians chapter 1, and bring them to a, a life and faithfulness and the inheritors of eternal blessing. He can hang on a cross, be buried in a tomb, and walk out breathing. We worship him. And so we get into these debates on lesser topics, and the issue needs to be, what are you worshiping here? Genesis 1 is a reminder that none of that stuff is too hard for this God. And that should dominate our view, even in debates or disagreements on lesser topics. Number two, we need to have a right-sized view of the magnitude of the matter. 
Said another way, we do not worship our preferences. You can find websites that would tell you otherwise, but atonement does not hang in the balance on the age of the earth. The entrance exam at the throne of God is not, have you been washed by the blood of Jesus? Check yes or no. Question two, what is the age of the earth? You have 45 minutes to answer in essay form. It's not how that's going to go. There are first order doctrines that we should hold tightly and unswervingly to. The Trinity, that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, co-majestic. The virgin birth, of Jesus, the full deity and humanity of Jesus, the historical death and bodily resurrection of Jesus, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Those are things that we grab hold of and we say, I will not budge. And there are some first order doctrines in the creation account that God created the world from nothing, that he's distinct or independent from his creation and yet engaged with his creation, that he created the world good, that he created the world for the display of his glory, that he created both male and female who are full bearers of his image. Those all come out of the Genesis account. But then there are second order issues. These are the kinds of things that typically split denominations. Are we baptizing babies or not? That's second order. Are we baptizing by immersion or can we sprinkle? Second order. What's the role of women within pastoral ministry and leadership? The right use or manifestation of certain spiritual gifts. Those are all second order theological issues. And then there are third order theological issues. These are things that we can disagree on and yet worship happily alongside one another. The timeline in Revelation. What comes first? What exactly does that mean? We can have strong disagreements and different viewpoints, and then we can turn shoulder to shoulder, face the cross, and just worship alongside one another. Calvinism versus Arminianism. That's third, third order. The age of the earth. Sometimes to our own detriment, we take second or third order matters, and we turn them into misplaced gatehouses or litmus tests for whether or not a person is actually Christian. We elevate our preferences on something like the way we organize the local church to first order significance. And we say, you either believe this or you're not a believer. It's like, I'm going to get to heaven and they're going to ask me about which gifts were on display in my local church. And if I answer wrong and depart from me, I never knew you. What are, you, what are we worshiping there? Jesus Christ on the cross in the place of sinners or my preferences for worship in my local church? Third, have a right-sized view of the importance of your opinion. We don't worship our opinions. By all means, have one. This sermon is not me telling you not to have an opinion about the age of the earth. Develop one. Get it as fully formed as you possibly can. And you might still be saying, Tim, you still have not answered the question. I'll tell you why. I have an opinion, absolutely, but I make it a point to not come up here and speculate in front of you. And whatever I told you about the age of the earth would be just that. I would be speculating. 
We must seek to subject our opinions to the word of God. That's the key. Our opinions, even when they differ on second or third order things, ought to be framed by doing our level best to understand scripture. And so within this topic about the age of the earth and how literal is Genesis chapter one when it talks about 24-hour periods, there are some great conversations to have inside of that. There's a really good conversation to have about the interpretation of the Hebrew word yom, which is the word for day. Most of the time in the Old Testament when the word yom is used, it's used to refer to a 24-hour period, but not every time. In fact, the first time that the word yom is used in Genesis chapter 1, it's not talking about a a 24-hour period. God created light, separated light from darkness, and he called the light day. He didn't call the light a 24-hour period, so what do we do with that? How do we interpret that word? It's a good conversation. There are good questions about the timeline of eternal events and how they fit into the creation account. Most notably, when was Satan cast out of heaven and where was he sent to and how does that fit into Genesis 1 and 2? That's a good question. There are good questions about literary type, which ought to influence how we understand Genesis chapter 1. How much is poetry? And based on the answer to how much is poetry, how are we to read the structure that's presented to us in Genesis chapter 1? How much is poetry where we read other places in Scripture that talk about creation? If everything in Genesis chapter 1 you're, you're wanting to say is absolutely literal, and then you get over to Job and he talks about stretching the sky out, is that literal? How come that's poetry, but Genesis chapter 1 is in poetry? Is there actually a storehouse for snow somewhere, or is that a metaphor? Is the earth actually standing on the foundations of the ocean, or is that poetic language? And how much of that is true in Genesis chapter 1? Those are good questions. And there are good questions about textual realities that sometimes go unconsidered in Genesis chapter 1. For instance, there is no sun or moon in days 1 through 3. So even when the text is saying evening and morning the first day, that can't be us conceptualizing a day exactly as we understand it right now because there was no sun, there was no moon, and God was giving light to the earth like he will in Revelation where Jesus and his radiance is what lights up new heaven and new earth. How does that impact the way that we understand Genesis chapter 1? Those are all good questions. But notice the starting point. The starting point is seeking to understand the text as best we can as it was intended to be understood. None of the answers to those questions undoes what is clear in Genesis chapter 1, that this is a chapter intended to teach the people of God all about the God who creates. The answers to those types of questions shouldn't jump purely from our opinion or from scientific understanding alone or from personal preference or from human creative imagination. We should do our best to subject the development of our opinions to the revelation that God has given us. And when we do that, it breeds a type of humility that helps us keep a right-sized view of our opinion, which enables us to maintain Christ-like demeanor in conversation about our opinions. You can develop an opinion and disagree passionately with someone else and yet disagree like Christ. You can disagree passionately with someone and not sacrifice the fruit of the Spirit. 
You can disagree passionately with someone and have no disdain for your brother or sister. You can disagree passionately and keep a hold on the reins of, rein of your tongue. You can disagree passionately and breed no contempt for the other party. You can disagree passionately and not give way to snark or condescension. You can disagree passionately and have the other person walk away and say, that was a lot more like a pillow fight than a rock fight. And then once you've had your conversation, you can turn shoulder to shoulder toward the cross and return to worship. You can stand alongside your brother or sister and worship the bigness and the majesty of a God who both created and who recreates his people by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The nature of God is the focal point of the creation account. And so we're gonna close in worship. I would encourage you, have every conversation you want over coffee or over lunch about how old the earth is. They're fantastic conversations. We sharpen one another in the midst of those. But keep the main thing the main thing. Hold your opinions in light of the right magnitude of the issue and in light of the right sized view of your opinion and then return to worship with one another. We're gonna sing an old song here as we enter into worship, but it's not old enough to be cool, like a hymn. We're going to sing a song from like the 90s, which is just old enough to be cheesy. But we're going to sing it intentionally. The song is How Great Is Our God, the Chris Tomlin classic. The splendor of a king, robed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide. It trembles at his voice. That's the God of Genesis chapter one to which we would reply, how great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. Amen. Let's stand up and sing together.